Greetings, and welcome to Beatles Stuffology, where two old friends sit around and talk BS. Beatles stuff on a track-by-track basis, pretty much for the sake of it. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Deacon. Say hi, Andrew. Hello. Are you ready to leave Please Please Me in the rearview mirror and move on to some new material? Uh, yeah, but it's not that far in the rearview mirror, is it? I mean, it is just maybe going out of sight as we, we put the accelerator down, yeah, but only yeah. just. Yeah, yeah, only just indeed. Which means this week we are going to be covering the first post-Please Please Me single, that's quite difficult to say, uh, which is uh, From Me To You. So um, that's what we're covering this week. Uh, let's let's just start at the beginning. How, how are you finding this one? Um, I, one of the problems with doing this, uh, these recordings with you is, of course, we start looking at these songs as individual songs. And, and so the temptation, I think, always is to try and pick holes because I think it's easier to say something negative than it is to say something positive. So my first reaction is, well, ooh, it feels like it's got the um, um, the tempo of Love Me Do. And it's kind of a little bit plodding. But that seems really unfair because it is still such a catchy song. You know, it's like Love Me Do, but perhaps with a, with a slightly more amphetamines taken in the sense that you can feel that there is a real sense of of optimism about it i mean it's not please please me it's not she loves you it doesn't have as big a cultural impact as as those or i want to hold your hand but it was their first number one yeah which is you know significant in and of itself of course and it i I mean i kind of think it deserves to be so it it is an Mm -hmm. incredibly infectious little song there's something about it which does have a kind of energy and for all that it's not it's not up-tempo in the same way as like you say uh, uh, she loves you is or something like that it's still it's got a real kind of drive and energy behind it which which is kind of captivating really it's got a lot of the elements that you would necessarily think of that go into making a, a great Beatles single and have gone into some of the other songs that we've talking about we've talked about previously as well um, but all just kind of assembled pretty much in the right order for kind of maximum impact I, I i think if you were to choose any other song that might have been deserving of that first number one i would probably plump for i saw standing there but okay that aside okay. i mean i i can't i don't think i don't think there's any other song on the first album which deserves that number one slot as much as as this does okay Fair enough. I, I see. I would have. I would have gone for please, please me myself. I, th- I think it has just a little bit more pizzazz, um, a little bit more oomph, and a little more. Well, let's just pick another word that sounds a bit kind of weird and funny. Um, but I tell you what, I, you know, I, th- I think where it captivates is right from the start because I wonder. Admittedly, it's not in terms of words. It is in terms of the da-da-dum, da-da-dum-dum-dum. But how many songs are there out there where the instrumentation and the vocals kick in absolutely at the same time on the first beat? Chances are that you you probably spend weeks trying to come up with one. I think there was a squeeze song uh, that did it, but really there's there's so few. You know, it all comes in together. It, it's all a unified thing right from the start. And I think it's quite powerful. Yeah, I completely agree. I really do. And it's 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 just another one of those hooks. And it's it's almost brain-meltingly annoying just how good they are at coming up with those kind of hooks this early on in their career, you know. Like you said, 
um, if Please Please Me as an album is only just in the rearview mirror, it's, you know, it's by, you know, a handful of days and they're still knocking them out at this kind of quality. And it's not something that needs to be, you know, a good hook doesn't need to be complicated. In fact, it probably shouldn't. It should be something very simple, which gets lodged in your brain. And that's exactly what that open kind of, that opening kind of the uh, lumdy lum dum dum is. It's just there. And once it's in, there's no shifting it. it it's such a, yeah, it, it's it's one of those things that it, 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 on the surface, seems like such a simple thing to achieve. And yet it's so difficult to get those kind of hooks right. And, and yet there it is, just sitting there casually, absolutely, you know, made yeah. to look completely effortless. And yet it's utterly kind of captivating. It's the thing that pulls you straight into the song. And it's it's just glorious. I think it's it's interesting that they, they clearly thought enough of it to work the song through, to think through every chord change, to, yeah. to just make sure that everything fitted just right. Because obviously we will talk about the, the B-side separately, there are points in 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 the B side, thank you, girl, where you go, oh yeah, this is a really good song, and then there are some really clunky chord changes um, that just jar completely, and you think you didn't finish this, did you? And that's really indicative. And this song, you know, from me to you, has in a very short space of time gone through quite a lot of development, from you know writing it on the tour bus. Um, from you know perhaps playing it a couple of times playing it to George Martin you know him not thinking it was all that great and then saying well, why don't we put the harmonica on um, to then having another go at it and then it working it absolutely working and then just becoming this thing that not only worked but was something that became a you know a mainstay of their their live set for about the next 18 months Absolutely, and this is going to be one of the rare kind of Beatles songs where I'm not going to give um, Lennon's harmonica a hard time because I think it really does add to the texture of the song. Um, it's not something which feels um, superfluous or tacked on, and, and George Martin was absolutely right. Just, just, just that little addition. It's another one of those details that just pushes it that little bit further, gives it that little bit extra. Uh, it's again, it's not a complicated harmonica line it's extremely simple but it's it's enough it's exactly what the song needs so yeah for once i'm not going to be harsh on the harmonica is this i mean in my mind this is a shared lead vocal am i am i getting that right um yeah i think you're getting that right is it also therefore possibly one of the last because she loves you okay so you know the chorus is them together but once you get into, um, um, you know, the verse itself, it's not. It's absolutely not. So I, I just tr- sort of trying to think, are we, are we seeing the, the development in a sense of the end of one of the things that's made them, you know, really big and really popular, but also them morphing that into something that's going to take them on to even greater heights? I think that's partly it. I mean, She Loves You is kind of the best example of the kind of the, 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 the joint lead vocal, um, particularly in the verses. Um, but I mean, it's definitely present here. Um, and it's one of those things which make those early Beatles recordings so distinctive. Um, but yeah, we are kind of getting to the end of that run. We are yeah. getting to the point where, where that's not going to be much of a feature but in saying that it's not going to be much of a feature going forward that does slightly mean that we have to you know ignore the biggest single of the 1960s coming up so uh yeah yeah it's 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 on its way out but okay on on, on its way out the door it's really going to make its impact 
I, I okay. So I, yeah, perhaps I've I've got in my head that um, okay, perhaps I've got a different memory of, of she loves you uh, in my mind. I need to go back and uh, well, clearly I do need to go back and listen to it again before <laughs> we talk about it. But really, perhaps have a um, um, a deeper listen because I just sort of felt like that was more one of the ones where you you could sort of possibly look at it and think, well, John seems to be a little bit more responsible here. Well, John, John is John is more taking the lead, and she loves you, and and, yeah. and McCartney's providing the harmonies, but they're there more or less all the way through, if memory serves correctly. So it, it is it is still one that would definitely count in that regard. So we're both right, is what we're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're, we're we're both incredibly knowledgeable, and we're both incredibly accurate. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. In the world, <laughs> in the world that seeks disagreement, let yeah. us bring agreement. Okay, lovely. So moving on. <laughs> Do you know it's it's funny and um, um, listening to to this uh, uh, a couple of days ago, I think for the first time I was sort of thinking, right, okay, can I actually work out what the bass is doing here? Uh, it may just be that I was listening to a different version or perhaps a better set of um, headphones again, but it felt like there was more of what you might regard as being a um, signature Paul McCartney bass line. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, and I think it's it's something that we'll see going forward increasingly is that the bass will start to become more relevant mm. uh, in terms of their recordings. I, I think I mentioned in one of the previous episodes that uh, like the Hofner bass isn't actually that great an instrument. Um, and eventually, sort of mid-60s, it'll get dropped in favour of a Rickenbacker, which has got that much more kind of meaty kind of bass sound to it. Uh, but certainly at this point, and particularly post Please Please Me, we will start to see that that kind of baseline developing. It's certainly something which will be true on She Loves You. We'll certainly see it more sort of through with the Beatles and as we, we sort of develop on that way. So no, you're quite right. It's definitely something which is, is more prominent and very much to the song's advantage because it is something else which, you know, provides that additional hook. That, that whole thing about this song is that it's just basically a collection of really indelible hooks all strung together in a song and and the bass line absolutely helps to provide that as well and and it's slightly greater prominence the fact that it's mixed that little bit higher does give that sort of extra thing for you to latch onto and that's that's why it's interesting that that having only recorded it in i think february 63 you know it couldn't have been written that long before then it's being released in april 18th of april 63 in in the uk but two weeks after the album, Please Please Me is released. So they thought enough of it to put it out as a support to the album. And of course, as we, you know, we have discussed, albums weren't really a thing. You know, the albums were, were expensive. People bought singles. Um, you know, they would be, the soundtrack albums would be so much more successful. The album charts only went one to 20, you know, all of those things that we've spoken about before, but they thought enough of, of both the album and also this single to have both out at the same time to go, do you know what? Our fans will buy both this and we're also going to give them this because this is, this is, you know, the evolving music industry. This is not the, um, you know, the music industry that, that sort of reached peak um, you know, uh, consumerism in, in the 80s, 90s, and then after the turn of the century, you know, where everything was so much more refined in order to sell units, you must do this. You know, so it's fascinating that it's just a case of, we've got this great song, our fans will love it, let's put it out now. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to undersell the fact that it is obviously being released in support of the album, even although it's obviously not on the album. I mean, it, it, there's no, there's no doubt about that. And and um, for all that we can say, well, you know, yeah, this was this was done and dusted in, in what is really a phenomenally short period of time. You know, it's it's not complete coincidence that it's it's just out a couple of weeks after please please me it's 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 there to give everything uh, a push and you know it's it's the name if you've got the name of the single if you've got the name of the album you know you're going to start to see um you know that kind of well what we would now call media saturation i suppose i don't imagine anybody using that expression back in, in 1963 but you know that's how it is and and you know we're we're really at the at the point where um where Beatlemania starts to be not just a phenomenon which is restricted to kind of overexcitable teenage girls, but which is something which is becoming a genuine sort of movement across the country. If move, is movement the right word? Movement probably isn't the right word, uh, but but a phenomenon nonetheless. And and having this single out and having this, as we said, get be the be the first number one. I mean, there's nothing more indicative of the fact that we've shifted you know, into a, I don't want to say shifted into a new paradigm because that sounds like pretentious bollocks, but you know what I mean? We've, we've definitely moved into a different phase of the band's career. That's a less pretentious way of saying it, right? Oh, sorry, I talked about evolution earlier, so be as pretentious as you like, it's fine. Okay. Um, all right. I, th- I think it is, It. you know, you, you could then look at what happens afterwards because She Loves You isn't uh, recorded until July and released until August. And, and if we were looking at... Um, schedule for a, um, a modern band we'd still say that oh what well, an album in april new single in april and then a, another new single that's not on the album in august as being you know well that's workaholics but you know these guys were not exactly taking that time off between the release of from me to you and she loves you they would have been touring their nuts off um you know, it would be interesting to have a look at the number of, of gigs that they played in that time. But it was all about momentum. And again, you know, I have to say it's in an industry that is completely different to the one that we would recognise now. People were, were making it up because they didn't have a model um, from which to, to go on. You know, the Beatles kind of created, created the model that other acts at the time bought into. And then later on, when they stopped touring and they started taking longer to record, well, funnily enough, lots of other bands also follow that model. It's, it's sort of, you know, interesting just to look at how innovative they were, even if through the eyes of um, 2022, you think, oh, well, you know, from me to you, is it? Well, that's a bit plodding, isn't it? Think, well, OK, well, let's go back and have a look. Yeah, yeah. they were, they were yeah. doing something that was just... I mean, it's it's just that old thing of um, it being such a, a bizarre set of coincidences, because you can imagine that there were lots and lots of incredibly talented people who never met the right kind of backing, the right support to then take them forward and, and do what they did. It's not to say that they would have written from me to you, she loves you, uh, strawberry fields forever or anything, even half as as good as any of those but it does make you wonder how much of, of success is chance. Well, I mean, a vast amount of it. And, and you know, I, mean, we, I don't want to, I wouldn't ever want to undersell the amount of hard work that they put in. I mean, like you said, mm-hmm. 
it would be interesting to know how many live gigs they played in between. And, you know, a more professional podcast probably would have bothered to do the research and, and find that out. But, listener, that's not what you're listening to at the moment. But, you know, I mean, also, you know, Brian Epstein definitely understood the value of, of, of never letting up, of, of pushing and pushing and pushing. So whether it was, uh, you know, performances at the BBC, whether it was live performances, uh, you know, we start to get, uh, you know, television appearances at this point as well with the Palladium. You know, it's just this constant, relentless pressure to keep stuff happening, to keep the name up there, uh, to keep people paying attention to it. And after a certain point, it becomes self-sustaining. That's and that's this is this single is kind of that moment. It's kind of the moment where it crosses over from uh, being something which is being relentlessly driven by you know, marketing by, uh, by Brian Epstein's desperate desire to keep everything moving and the point where it's simply, it's happened. They've got to number one now, it's taking off and, and we're away. And I mean, in terms of, you know, I mean, luck always plays a part in any kind of um, creative endeavor and any kind of success. Um, and there are a lot of incredibly talented people and also Jerry and the Pacemakers who managed to become extremely successful off the back... <laughs> I'm sorry, they're terrible. Um, they managed to become extremely successful um, off, the, off the back of this. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things about this kind of period is partly what you mentioned, which is, you know, we're seeing the evolving um, industry as it becomes more like what we would expect it to be and there are some things which are just nothing like they are now and yet some things which are absolutely exactly the same now and one of the things which hasn't changed at all is this tendency for there to be a trend in this case Beatlemania and then just this vast long sort of comet tail of other bands who ride it until that market is completely exhausted and that's a phenomenon that's still around today um and and you know that's that's all those all those sort of early middle 60s uh mercy beat bands who are going to emerge copy that um that phenomenon until every single last penny has been wrung from it and then it'll be dropped in favor of something else and some of that will be um folk music goes through the same thing psychedelia goes through the same thing and you know and that pattern will repeat it and what's incredible is how often the beatles are actually at the forefront of that you know they you know they bring a lot of that kind of folk music attention you know around sort of um help in that kind of period though obviously they'll manage it with the uh, uh, psychedelia with the revolver and sergeant pepper and you know they just keep pushing at that but that phenomenon of 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 um yeah the long tail of bands that kind of trail in their wake that's absolutely still a feature of of uh, of the modern music scene so i can tell you that um a quick um um uh, look at setlist and of course you know setlist.fm is is not going to be um 100% reliable it is reliant on users to upload setlists although it may be that for a band like the beatles someone's been able to go through the research that other people have done and and just take it from there. Certainly, they 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 seem to have played live at least 138 times during 1963 because there are 138 records um, of I saw her standing there being played. And then the second most for 1963 is From Me to You, uh, which is quite interesting. If now if you're interested in this sort of thing, um, there are 70 songs that are listed, including about 25 that were only played once. All bar one of the ones that were only played once, again, according to the user uploaded information, 
were, were covers. The one Lennon-McCartney song, really Lennon, but the one Lennon-McCartney song that was only played once in a gig in 1963, according to the users of setlist.fm, is um, When I'm 64, which I keep forgetting really? is one of the earliest of McCartney's compositions. It would be fascinating yeah. to hear it in that, that really, really early phase. Um, yeah, but it's also, you know, it's, it's a little reminder and it is relevant. You know, it seems like it's, it's an almighty tangent, but it is relevant to what we're talking about. Because bear in mind, there's 70 songs there, and you know, I'd say a quick estimate would probably put it at well over half, maybe as many as 40, perhaps even more, are covers. So this is once again, it's that reminder: a band who are new to songwriting. I know that there's the myth of well, you know, we had we were doing it for years, and and therefore we had lots in the back catalogue. Of course, we've spoken about before the fact they didn't. They went, you know, two or three years without writing songs of being a big covers band. So, you know, this is a group that is new to writing songs. And in a, in a year they come up with, um, you know, from me to you, please, please me. And she loves you. It's um, it's not a bad start, really, especially bearing in mind, you know, people often talk about um, how long it takes. Uh, it's the old second um, second album syndrome, isn't it? That a, a band will spend so long honing their material and getting that right on for the first album but then they've got to release the second album in the space of 12 to 18 months and it's absolutely crap because they're, they're rushing the songwriting well uh the beatles <laughs> right they didn't exactly give themselves 12 <laughs> to 18 months you know they've launched straight into this which is why it makes it absolutely remarkable um as it is and it's also perhaps why it's forgivable that I think the biggest inspiration for this comes from their own songs. So I've mentioned already that I think the, the tempo just reminds me, it sort of sits in between Love Me Do and Please Please Me. I think the rhythm of it really does feel like it's got more in common with, with Love Me Do. You know, it's another song title that's got me in it. So, okay, fair enough. They're writing about things that are, you know, say vaguely familiar um, you know themes for for the music we've got the woos in there um, that seem to me to to be something that comes from um, twist and shell um, you know it, it, there's a lot of of Beatles influences in from me to you and and I think that is is really really interesting the fact that that you know the early stuff you can say, okay, well, the inspiration comes from the Everleys, the inspiration comes from the Isley Brothers, you know, there's a bit of um, um, Buddy Holly in here, there's, there's you know, these various girls groups over there, um, and they've distilled that into some songs, and now they've distilled that into an original song of their own. No, I completely agree, and I think it's indicative of how far they've come in that very short period of time, that the... the elements that they're assembling in order to put these songs together are no longer really elements which are being pulled from cover versions, but which are elements which are being pulled from other Lennon-McCartney songs. And I think that's why, um, I think, well, I think particularly for, for This and She Loves You, we really start to see the emergence of the Beatles as 
in inverted commas the Beatles rather than you know with a lot of the material on that first album you know yeah like you say they're, they're pulling bits from from uh, from Little Richard from Elvis from the Isley Brothers from Buddy Holly from wherever it is um, and they're a band who are as good as I think you could possibly be for a band who are essentially um, regurgitating influences but from this point onwards, they're not really doing that anymore. I mean, it's telling that there'll be almost no other songs we talk about the harmonica on. There's like oh, maybe two more, I think, that we have to we have to struggle through the harmonica. I said I wasn't going to be nasty about it, and I'm not being on this song. But uh, you know, the harmonic the harmonica's on the way out, and that yeah, absolutely, it, it served its purpose. It's done its time. It's put its shift in, and now it's time to put it to one side and, and move on to something else. And and losing things like that is yeah it's it's indicative of the fact that they are mostly now just their own thing rather than a series of influences and it's not like those influences will ever die away I mean obviously Bob Dylan's going to be a huge influence going forward etc etc we all we all kind of know that sort of stuff is coming up but nevertheless in terms of pure songwriting it's now it's Lennon and McCartney and I suppose next album out George Harrison will start to make his impact felt as well um, and I think the change in the quality of material is palpable I, I, I think from me to you is better than almost anything on Please Please Me and I think that will largely give or take a Mr. Moonlight that will largely continue to be the case going forward you know the material is just going to get better and better as they become sort of more self-confident in their own writing but also as as those kind of more sort of generic influences of the time are, are laid to one side and I think that's that's why these early albums tend to get slightly overlooked because there is that almost continual sense of of progression I mean it's not complete i mean you know we can argue about where it peaks you know whether it's revolver whether it's um sergeant pepper whether it's the white wherever we we, we might want to say that that, that 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 peaks um but there is that sense of of you know something always moving forward um that means people look down a bit on some of these early albums um, but it also does mean it makes it hard to make a, a case for them as coherent products because we know what follows. Put yourself in the position of someone who only knows the Beatles for Please Please Me and then From Me To You. And you know the chances are that everything they released seemed absolutely magical and wonderful. Well, absolutely. And I mean, I think that's the thing about From Me To You. I think as a song, it is a little bit... It's forgotten too strong yeah. word. Yeah, I don't know. I had written I think, down. I, th- I, had, I think it, it's. I sorry, I'd written down on my notes when I was listening to it, saying, "Oh, I'd forgotten about this one." You know, in in my head, <laughs> um, you know, and and only an idiot would do this. Really, I'd move straight from "Please Please Me" onto "She Loves You." Yeah, you'd have to be really stupid to do that. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, moving, <laughs> moving I, on. What I find interesting, of course, is is that um, you know EMI. I'm already thinking that EMI owned Capitol Records in America. I think there was something like that, but, but Capitol Records still thought of itself as being a um, like a better record label than EMI um, because they couldn't get the early singles released by them. It was it was released by what was the name? It was it like VJ? It was a really kind of VJ. seemingly yeah, VJ. obscure, uh, well for us seemingly obscure record company, and. You know, it it sold. I don't know. Tuppence halfpenny. Um, 
it's really, really odd to think that they were struggling to make much of, of an impression in, um, um, in America, especially bearing in mind that when they do break through, they will have, you know, the top five positions. They, they will have, and I think when they, they did hold the, the top five positions in the singles charts, it was off on, I think, three different record companies, you know, something bizarre like that until eventually, you know, Capital got hold of it um, and were then able to release, um, you know, all of the records going forward. It just seems seems really, really odd that that people were listening to this and going, mm, nah, not sure about that. I suppose so, although uh, the, the, th the three record labels would have been Capital, VJ and Swan, I think was the name of the other one. Yeah. So that would have been the three record labels that were occupying the top five slots. But, you know, one, once again, you know, historical context, uh, no other English bands had broken through. It, it, that, it just wasn't a thing. Yeah. And whilst we, you know, we can argue about the short-sightedness of, of Capital, who decided that it wasn't worth pushing or it wasn't worth, you know, their time and energy, like no other band had, had broken through. So from our perspective, it seems ludicrous that you would take like a single like this. You wouldn't, you know, run it as far as you possibly could. But there was no precedent for it. There was no, no other band had really got through I think um, I think I think I'm right in saying Telstar was the first British number one okay. in America yeah but there had been sense. almost nothing else um, and there just wasn't the the scope for bands to be able to do when when you know bands in the late 50s and early 60s in, in the UK were talking about breaking America they were talking about it in, in kind of in an entirely fictional sense because nobody had really ever done it. So, you know, they were the vanguard. And I know we'll talk about kind of the British invasion and, and American Beatlemania as we, we sort of move forward into 1964 a bit further down the line. But, you know, yeah, it, it, from our perspective, it's ludicrous. From their perspective, it makes perfect sense because why, why would they waste time and energy promoting this silly little beat band um, when no other English band had ever really managed to, to, to make that kind of impact? You know, it is funny, of course, because they will go on and conquer America without actually going there. It's, um, it's one of those, those funny things that, yeah. um, you know, it kind of looks like that um, once From Me To You had made a little bit of an impact in the middle of 63, it was in, in sort of like the big markets like Chicago and Los Angeles. Um, and, and of course, bands these days get criticised if they go to America um, and they just tour in, in the big markets and say, well, you can't break America if you're only going to play in New York, Chicago um, and Los Angeles. Well, the Beatles didn't even do that. <laughs> and they, they still managed to eventually <laughs> break through. It must be a one in the eye. But the, the estimate I've seen is that after about a month of release, they'd sold 4,000 copies of From Me To You. And yet, of course, when they finally broke through in 64, it was on the double A side with Please Please Me and sold over a million. Yeah. God, can you imagine how much one of those 4,000 would be worth now? Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Yeah, if only we'd look that one up as well. We'll, we'll never do the research to find out. <sighs> hey, listener in Mexico or Sweden, <laughs> um, why don't you... No, you're not going to do that, are you? No. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. That would I mean, it'd be interesting to know. And by the time you and I next talk, we will have forgotten. 
Yeah, I think that goes without saying. And something I think we've adequately proven over the course of this podcast, every time I edit it, there's always a line. We'll look into this or we'll come back to this next episode. We never do. So that's fine. We can confidently say, well, we should look into that in the certain and sure knowledge that we are simply not going to. Okay, well, maybe at some point when you are um, editing and putting these together, if you actually start writing them down, we could have an episode called We Should Look Into That. Claim it's a long-lost Beatles um uh, track um, from a, a BBC recording that was never aired, and we'll talk about that, and also all the things that we said that we should look into. Okay, I'll um, I'll start compiling a list. We should look into that. It does sound like it is the kind of the counterpoint to uh, some of these song titles. You know, we've got "Please Please Me." <laughs> yes. She loves you. From me to you, love me do. We can look into that. <laughs> Although I, I can now picture... I, 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 admire, I admire the effort. Yeah, I can actually picture Paul McCartney writing a When I'm 64 type or obli dee obli da type uh, um, musical melody to it. Okay, right, move on. I've killed that one to uh, Stone Dead. You haven't said anything about Ringo on this episode. I'm, I'm really surprised. I haven't said anything about Ringo this episode. Um, I, I mean, he's... Great. I don't. I, it, I don't know what to say. I mean, <laughs> I really sold that one, didn't I? Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. He's Ringo. He's great. <laughs> I don't know what you want me to say. Um, I don't know. I think the thing is, is that. Um, I mean, he's just solid in the song. It's, I mean, it, yeah, everything about it is great. Uh, you know, he does a terrific job and all the rest of it. But I don't know that it's necessarily one of his most distinctive performances it, it's a rock solid classic Beatles you know here we go thing but you know like you said like the bass is more prominent in this yeah. the, the, the harmonica is more prominent it, it's not one of the songs where he necessarily um, pulls focus uh, he's just there he does his thing he does it perfectly and, and then we're good to go I think on the um, on, on the bridge you do get a sense that the um, the guitar uh, line is almost acting like a, a counterpoint to um, the the melody, which I think works really quite well. There's almost a um, you know sort of a dirty ish sound to it, uh, which I think is is well, quite well. It, it's yeah, absolutely, and it's it's one of those songs which shuffles around a lot of uh, seventh chords. So the the main structure of the chord is is the major. Um, and then we get a lot of sevenths thrown in, and that gives it that slightly bluesy, slightly dirty sort of feel to it. It's exactly the same trick that I saw standing there, Pools. It shifts a lot of stuff into the sevenths because it just makes everything sound that little bit more, not edgy, but it, it just gives it that little something, which means it's not just a straightforward kind of, uh, a straightforward run at the major chords. So, no, you're, you're quite right about that. Okay, look at me checking <laughs> a bit of musical knowledge, you know, rather than the yeah, whole yeah. bunch of context. Yeah. Okay. Fair What's enough. happened? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it sort of occurs to me again that, that, of course, what we've got is a song that is written, um, you know, after their last uh, trip to Hamburg. It's, it's another one of those, those songs that doesn't have a huge history of performance prior to recording. You do sort of wonder how much it might have evolved and changed whether perhaps the you know the the tempo might have changed had they had a chance to 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 play it um a lot more but um you know we'll follow that under you'll never know no um 
I mean, if you got, don't worry. If you've got nothing to say on that, we can move on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I don't have a lot. <laughs> it wasn't Thanks really phrases. <laughs> nice of, nice. Hmm, let's let's ponder for a second. Nice, nice to be let off the hook. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. No, I mean, I think you're right, but uh, yeah, it it, it 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 would feel probably a bit slow in that form to be to be uh, played in the Kaiser Keller or whatever, you know. Um, but at the same time. Think it's. I think it's what it should be. I don't. I don't. I like you keep using the word plodding, which isn't necessarily the adjective. No, that's not quite what I, I would that, go for. That is unfair. That is unfair. Yeah. Um, but but it's uh, it's it's more considerately paced. Let's say it that way than than kind of just the yeah. thrashing of uh, I don't know she loves you or, or one of those sort of more up tempo numbers of boys or something like that. Um, so yeah, it's more more considered in its pacing. Um, but yeah, doubtless that would have been something that had evolved if it had been sort of pre rather than uh, post Hamburg. Yeah. So, um, I mean, apart from the harmonica, I wonder how big a role George Martin plays in this because we we still got inexperienced boys in the studio with their, um, uh, you know, were they being allowed up to the um, the engineer's desk at any point or the mixing desk at any point during this because they they're, they're playing it as a. I don't think so. Not at this stage. No. So it's it's still a case of capturing a live performance. Um, and there you go. Over to you, George. Now now you do the rest. Yeah, I think the harmonica was George Martin's it was, idea, yeah. if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so you know, so there's there's clearly still influence uh, you know, being exerted there. And again, like I said before, absolutely the right call. It does give the song that extra little hook. It gives it something more um for you to you know get your brain wrapped around so um yeah i mean clearly he has some influence on it i mean it's not a super complicated recording or anything i i i'm sure this is still to two track uh, a couple of overdubs and and you know bob's your uncle so it's not it's not one of the songs where there's even all that much capacity I guess for for George Martin to have influence, but just just something as simple as yeah, okay, go play harmonica in this. All right, George, yeah. and they do, and it's just perfect. You know, sometimes it's it's the little details that make all the difference in the world. Six takes and seven edit pieces, says the uh, the good Lord Wikipedia, and and apparently it went Lovely. without a hitch. There you go. Good, good, good to know. That is good advice. to know. Well, it is. I mean, if you you bear in mind that sometimes. Um, sometimes classic albums are said to come from uh, tension, um, you know. And mind you, the album that that is normally referred to uh, in that is a Fleetwood Mac one, um, you know. But that band is nothing but tension. But you know, sometimes the band are more interesting than the music. Well, yeah, there is that. Yeah, but there is you know something to be said. Yeah, right. Hold on. Hold on. No, sorry. I need to find another way of saying this because if I say it, I'm just going to say it in the cheesiest way possible. Um, there's something to be said for a band working together um, who are, oh, see now, see, I was, I'm trying to avoid basically saying a band in perfect harmony because that's, that's just a bit too cheesy for the Beatles. But I was going to follow on with, then my, my next alternative was, oh, they're all in tune with each other. Think, well, that's just as bad. Um, so anyway. Four musicians are perfectly perfectly in sync with each other. Yes, yes. Yeah, and they pitch this, oh, for God's sake. Right, okay. I'm going to shut up for a bit. I think we know what we're going for here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, the song's quite good. Yeah, there you go. I should have just said that, really. Yeah, they're a nice nice bunch of boys who all love their mums. And and they work very hard. And and the effort they put in was rewarded. That's the rock and roll story. 
<laughs> well, that's a that's a lovely, cheerful way of uh, <laughs> drawing this discussion to a close. <laughs> <laughs> that might be way, my way of saying, I don't think I've got anything else I can say about this. Yeah, I don't have a phenomenal amount to add to that. I think you find a perfect way of summing up the entirety of rock and roll music. Excellent well, do you, know, do you know, actually, actually, in fairness, the one thing we haven't really mentioned are um, are the words. And you can also see that there is a little bit of development here. I know with this sort of, you know, I mocked the, um, you know, the personal pronoun kind of thing. Um, and it is them just talking about um, a similar subject. But there's that light, it sticks in my mind. You've got arms that long to hold you. And of course, that will crop up again um, as an, a possible alternate original title for um, the Beatles' second film until they came up with Eight Arms to Hold You. Oh, yeah, Eight Arms to Hold yeah. You, yeah. And, and so you can sort of see how someone has, has thought, ah, oh, right, okay, ooh, ooh, that, I'll store that one away, um, and we can use that later on. So there is just a little bit something about this that, that makes you kind of think, although they're still existing in, in the same... Um, the same realm they are starting to get better at it no i think that's i think that's true and and you know if these aren't complicated lyrics and they're definitely not complicated lyrics they're they're effective for what they are like when you were talking about the the way that it's recording and, and having every member of the band just being in tune and harmony and sync with each other however you want to phrase it um like the lyrics are absolutely a part of that they click in perfectly with the music here, everything is exactly where it needs to be. Everything is in the right place. All the stresses, all the emphases, it just kind of works. And if it's not, if it's not complicated, that's absolutely fine. It's just precisely what this song needs. So, I mean, yeah, there's there's not really an awful lot to to analyze or to get into the weeds with. But at the same time, you you wouldn't want this lyric to be any other way. It's not, uh, it's not revelatory, but it it feels like progress, like you say, from the previous one. There's starting to be these little, little sort of lyrical flourishes, like you say, arms along to hold you. There's there's little bits where you can see things are trying to move forward. But I mean, the, again, partly the the sheer speed with which this was written and recorded and all the rest of it. There's not a lot of time left to go back, uh, for them to sort of refine things or, or to cut things down. But again, it, it doesn't really need that. It's it's precisely what this song needs. Yep, I agree. Good. Well, <laughs> you've been listening to agreeing about the Beatles. <laughs> Well, you know, you can't really disagree. I mean, from me to you, is it a good song? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, but it's not as good yeah. as she loves you, is it? No, it's not. Yeah, no, no, no. Did it really. have a cultural impact? Yeah, but not as much as she loves you. <laughs> Stepping. <laughs> this sounds very much like where we should be drawing a line on your things, so. doesn't it? I, th I think so. I think we. All uh, right. Um, yeah. We've, we've flogged this one a bit. You know, it's 1 minute 56, and, and currently on the unedited version, we're about to hit 45 minutes. So, um, All right. you know, I, I'd say we've got a very good minute-for-minute um, um, minute ratio going on here of podcast to song. I, I can only find it in my heart to agree with you. I absolutely agree. But at the same time, let's stop. So um, we'll leave it there and uh, move on. You can contact us by email. We are Beatles Stuffology at gmail.com. We're on Twitter 
at Beatles underscore ology. And you can find more of my writing at www.jgmacquarie.scot. Please like, rate, and review us on whatever podcast you're using so that more people can find the show. Next episode, we are going to be covering the B-side. Yeah, sorry about that, but that means I'm afraid... Well, it means we're going to have to cover Thank You Girl, but that's just one of the burdens that we have to cover. Anyway, until then, keep listening.